0: Kiddos who are in the room are our, our primary class, which I believe is the Webbs, Mr. Matt Webb in the back of the room, the Blue Redeemer Kids Church. So if you're a kindergarten first grade, you're going with uh, Mr. Webb down the hall to your classroom. If you're in grade school, which is second through fourth grade, with the McCaves in the back of the room, they will take you to your class down the hall. As you guys go to study the scriptures together as we open the Bible in here. For our sermon. Church, if you got a Bible, turn with me to the book of Matthew. Chapter six, verses sixteen to eighteen is where we're gonna be today. It's a little more orderly back there today. They're lining up in a single file line. Yeah. yeah. Matthew chapter six, verses sixteen to eighteen is where we're gonna read together this morning as we continue this series focused on disciplined discipleship. Taking a look at the habits that form our lives, and we come to take a look at one this morning that perhaps we've all heard about, but maybe some of us have never actually stepped into. And so we want to talk about this this morning, coming from Matthew chapter six, the the discipline or the habit of fasting. Matthew chapter six, verses sixteen to eighteen. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you don't have a copy in front of you, you can follow along there as we read together. But in Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse sixteen, Jesus in his sermon on the mount. As he's preaching, he turns his attention to fasting. And this is what he says. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father, who, who, who is in secret, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is God's Word. Now, if you've been to a grocery store over the weekend, you recognize very quickly uh, that this Wednesday, February 14th, is Valentine's Day. And so you've got all kinds of chocolate-covered strawberries, and you've got all kinds of bouquets of flowers and all those things. But this Wednesday, February 14th, is also Ash Wednesday, right, Ash Wednesday, and Ash Wednesday is a day on the church calendar, which signifies the beginning of a season, which is the on-ramp toward the highest point on the church calendar in the Western world of Easter, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. But uh, Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of a season on the church calendar known as Lent. And oftentimes during the month of Lent, or during the season of Lent, those six weeks running on the runway to Easter, Christians across the globe will enter into a season of fasting. They'll fast from something. I can remember as a child growing up in South Louisiana amongst all kinds of Roman Catholics. All right? Uh, Every Friday in the cafeteria, there was the only meat that you could eat was fish, right? Because they were fasting from red meat and chicken and pork and all other kinds of things other than fish. So they had fish patties and fish burgers and fried, all these kinds of things because they were fasting from that. But during the season of Lent, oftentimes Christians will fast from something in order to, in, in small ways, identify with the sufferings of Jesus as he made his way toward the cross. So as Jesus went through the rejection of the Jewish leaders, and ultimately the rejection of the Jewish people, as Jesus was betrayed by one of his own followers, and ultimately denied by one of his closest friends around a fire during the midst of an unjust trial, a puppet court that was established in order to find him guilty of blasphemy by the Jewish leaders, who would then turn him over to the Roman government because they had the authority to carry out execution and during his trial before the Roman government right the Roman governor didn't want to execute Jesus he wanted to give gave the people a choice between a known convicted criminal and Jesus himself and the people cry out crucify Jesus and so he is beaten and mocked and scorned with a crown of heads a thorns put upon his head and he carries his cross to a place called Golgotha where he's crucified and all that happens not because of his sin, but because of my sin and because of your sin. So, oftentimes during the season of Lent, Christians will fast from something in small ways to identify with the sufferings of Christ himself. Fasting as a discipline or as a habit. Listen, I, I read one article this week that called it the, the kale of the spiritual disciplines, right? Kale is something we all know is good for us, that green leafy vegetable, right? But when we go to a restaurant, we're not perusing the menu going, where's the kale? (laughs) Even though we know it's nutritious, we don't go seeking it out. And so this morning, we want to look at what Jesus has to say about fasting, and then take a look at the rest of some of the other passages in the Bible to learn why we fast, what fasting does, and then talk about how we implement this into our lives, how we try to establish this habit. Because as we said before, our hearts are formed by our habits, by our habits. And if we want to conform, to be conformed to the image of Christ, we need to develop habits that will reform our hearts. And fasting is one of those habits. So let's take a look at what Jesus says in this passage, and the first thing that we see when Jesus turns his attention to fasting in the Sermon on the Mount, because listen, he's talking about various aspects. He talks about giving, and he talks about praying, and he talks about fasting, all in this same context in this portion of his sermon. So what does he say about fasting? And the first thing that we see is Jesus says this, Jesus assumes his followers would fast. He assumes that they would fast. Fast. Listen, in verse 16, Jesus, when he transitions to speak of fasting in the sermon, his transition statement is this, and when you fast. Now, Jesus doesn't transition with a conditional statement, which would be, and if you fast, nor does he transition with a question like, hey guys, do you fast? That's not how he transitions either, but an adverbial clause, and when you fast. Or at the times in which you fast, upon the occasions when you employ fasting in your life. Jesus assumes that his followers would fast. That those listening to his sermon were familiar with the custom and practice of fasting because it was something that they themselves had engaged in. Because they actually did it. It was a common custom throughout biblical history. And in fact, throughout the ancient world, in fact, throughout the Bible, you see examples of individuals who fast. You see, in the Old Testament, we read about people like Ezra and Nehemiah fasting as they sought to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and then rebuild the covenant people of God as Ezra, as as a priest, functioning as a priest. Over the New Testament, in Luke 2, we read about a lady named Anna who's been praying and worshiping in the temple for decades fasting, it says, day and night, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She's waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And then she sees Jesus as He's dedicated in the temple, and she says, ah, He's here. Throughout the Bible as well, you see examples of groups of people fasting. In the book of Esther, you read about Jews everywhere weeping, lamenting, and fasting when they hear about the king's decree to destroy the people. Over in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 13, we read about the church in Antioch worshiping the Lord and fasting when the Holy Spirit comes to set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work that he would call them to as missionaries and church planters across the Mediterranean world. And then further on in Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas come back through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, it says that in every church they appointed elders, committing them to the Lord through prayer and fasting. Fasting. See, fasting was not a novel concept, and it was practiced in some way, shape, or form by nearly all peoples in the ancient world. And So Jesus doesn't tell them not to fast, nor does he ask them if they do fast, but rather tells them how to go about their lives when they fast, so they don't draw unnecessary attention to themselves and put on a show for all to see. Essentially, what Jesus says is this, fasting is not a spectator sport. It's not a spectator sport. Now listen, those of you who have little kids, you can appreciate this. Those of you who had little kids at some point in your life, you will appreciate this as well. Oftentimes, as kids grow and mature, right, whenever they're really young, like three or four years old, and they learn a new skill, right, they learn to do something new, right? They learn to put their head on the ground and roll over and do a little flip, right? What do they want to do? They want to show it off, don't they? And so you could be having family and friends over, you're all sitting in the living room, having a nice adult conversation, right? Minding the kids are running around playing and all of a sudden one kid climbs up on the ottoman of the coffee table, right? And makes this declaration, watch me, watch me. And then they get down and they do their little flip and everybody goes, oh, that's so cute, right? But essentially what Jesus says He said, that's not how fasting should operate in your life. When you fast, it ought not to be with this watch me kind of mentality or disposition. It is not a spectator sport. We don't fast, Jesus says, for the applause of men. We don't fast for human approval. We don't fast so that others would esteem us highly as they watch us. He says, if that's the disposition of your heart then here's the deal when you fast and you put on a show for all to see he says you've already received a reward and it is a temporal reward a temporary reward as everybody goes well done good job you're so spiritual however jesus says there's another reward for those who approach fasting like a uber top secret like classified document that's meant for only one set of eyes to see. It doesn't mean that we can't talk about fasting or acknowledge that we do fast or encourage others to fast or share our experiences with fasting. It's not what Jesus is saying, but he's saying we shouldn't be standing on the coffee table saying, watch me. It shouldn't be the disposition of our heart. Jesus assumes his followers would fast but says it's wrong to make an exhibition of your fasting. Now listen, I need to clarify something here. Fasting is not for varsity Christians. Okay? You know what I mean by that? Like some of us have this mentality that there are certain Christians out there who are like on the A team. Right? Some people are on the B team. Some people are on the C team. Right, that's how a lot of middle school sports operate. If you don't know, right? There's A team, B team, and C team, right? And so there's some Christians who are like their, their skill set is far beyond mine, so they're on the A team, and that's who fasting is reserved for. That is not who fasting is reserved for. Fat, but by the way, there there are no A teams, B teams, and C teams. Okay, listen, there's not varsity and JV. Okay. Fasting is for every Christian. Every Christian. It's for all of us, and Jesus assumes it will be one of those habits that shape our lives as disciples. Which begs the question then, why do we fast? Why, why do we employ this habit? Let me see if I can clear up perhaps another maybe misconception about fasting. Fasting is not spontaneous. it is situational. It is situational. See, often in the Bible, when you read about people fasting in the Bible, here's what you're going to find. It's the response to some sort of difficult circumstance or situation that they may find themselves in. See, when people in the Scriptures fast, they are seeking God's forgiveness, His mercy. They're seeking His guidance, His comfort, His intervention, His protection. They're in some sort of peril oftentimes, and they're petitioning God and fasting, saying, God, would you show up? Let me give you a few examples. People fasted in the Old Testament whenever they sought God's intervention. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan, he confronts David over David's sin with Bathsheba. Right, and he tells him the whole story, and he says, David, what do you think should happen to that guy? And David says, you should be killed. And he says, David, you are that guy. And he says, the consequence is, you're going to give birth to a child who is going to be afflicted and die. And so sure enough, when the child that Bathsheba had conceived is born, the child is afflicted with a disease. And whenever David sees the child is sick, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 16, it says, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went and lay down all night on the ground. See, what is David doing? He's fasting and seeking God on behalf of the child. In other words, he's pursuing God with fierce intensity, intensity saying, God, would you intervene? Would you relent? For would you heal and spare the life of the child? And we're told in the text for seven days, David lay on the ground, fasting, petitioning God on behalf of this child. And after seven days, the child dies. And it's only then that David breaks his fast. And he says in verses 22 to 23 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, when he's he asked about this by his attendants, he says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David breaks his fast and eats, but when he's fasting, he's petitioning God to intervene. Not only do individuals do this, but whole groups of people in the Old Testament book of Esther. The Jewish people find themselves scattered across the Persian Empire after the fall of Babylon. And there's this nasty guy named Haman. And Haman has it out for the Jews. And so he convinces the king of the Persian Empire to issue an edict that would basically result in the extinction of the Jewish people. Wherever they found themselves in the land. And in Esther chapter 4, we read about the response of the Jewish people when they hear about this decree. It says this, When Mordecai, one of the Jewish leaders, learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud, bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate with clothed and sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and decree was re- had, re- had reached, There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. See, when threatened with extinction, the people fast, and they weep, and they lament, seeking God's intervention. And you know what? God does. And this nasty guy, Haman, he had built a set of gallows to hang Mordecai on, and in an ironic twist of fate, the king ultimately issues an edict that the same gallows that were built to hang Mordecai by Haman, that Haman should be hung in himself. And God spares and saves the Jewish people to keep His promise to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations and bring forth the Messiah through them. People fasted as well in their mourning the death of another. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, we read about Saul's death at the hand of the Philistines. There's this great battle. The archers fire arrows. Saul and his sons are killed. And we're told very graphically what happens next that whenever the Philistines come into the battlefield, in order to, it says, in order to, uh, to, to, uh, Strip the slain, in other words, take all their goods and possessions and acquire them for themselves. It says they find Saul and his sons dead, and what they do is they cut off Saul's head, and they take Saul's body and the bodies of his sons, and they pin him to a wall. And they send his head around to all their temples, celebrating the death of Israel's king. And it says this. In 1 Samuel 31, verse 11, But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the walls of Bethshan, And they came to Jabesh and burned them. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days as they mourned the loss of their king. See, in our context, when someone dies, we show up with a casserole, right? And that impulse is not wrong. We want to care for and express concern and provide for those who are in a state of mourning. And yet in the scriptures, when someone dies, they mourn and they fast. See, so often when someone's in a state of mourning, we'll tell them, you need to eat something, and we put a plate of food in front of them. And perhaps they do, but perhaps they don't. Perhaps they need to fast. In one article I read this week, one author said it this way, in fasting we deny the comfort often legitimately found in good things God gives us, like food and drink, and run instead to God Himself for comfort and consolation. Sometimes we fast when people, we lose people we love. Fourth, people fast whenever they need God's protection. In Ezra chapter 8, we read about the households that returned to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon. Now that journey was roughly 900 miles. It took them about four months. And you can imagine as they made their way from Babylon to Jerusalem, all the dangers that might befall them upon that trek. And so before they start on the journey, We read in Ezra chapter 8 verses 21 to 23 this. Then Ezra says, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children and all our goods. And then he says, for I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and implored God for, for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So Ezra says, listen, I couldn't just go to the king and ask for his protection because I already told him, God's with us. So it wouldn't make sense to go ask him for protection. So we fasted and then petitioned God for protection on our journey, and guess what? He says, God answered. And he protected us all the way to Jerusalem. So sometimes people fast when they need protection. In addition, people fasted in repentance of sin and asking God to withhold judgment. In the book of Jonah, in chapter 3, whenever the the prophet finally shows up in Nineveh smelling like the gastric juices of a large fish. And he begins to preach and he wanders throughout the city with a very simple message, right? Forty days and you're going to get yours. It's not exactly what he said, but 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's my paraphrase, 40 days and you're going to get yours. And then the people respond to this message that Jonah preaches in a way that Jonah had hoped they wouldn't respond to the message. And listen to what happens in Jonah chapter 3 we read, And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and ashes, and he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God." Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. See, the people of Nineveh, as a part of their repentance from sin, based on this message they'd received from Jonah, what does the king say? Hey, listen, you can't even feed your cows. You can't even give them water. Right? Fashion sackcloth and put it on your sheep. And all the people... And they proclaim a fast in repentance over sin. Saying, God, would you be merciful? God, we believe you. Would you relent from the disaster that you promised? The punishment that is coming us on account of our sin. And later in the book, to Jonah's consternation. God relents. Spares the people of Nineveh. He shows mercy. Fasting is often employed throughout the Scriptures in the Old Testament as a, as a physical practice reflecting the spiritual reality of our repentance. In addition, people fasted whenever they were broken over current realities. In Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah gets word that the people had returned, but the walls around Jerusalem and the people who were still living there, they were broken down and in disrepair, and they were, they were, they were threats from all sides. So Nehemiah, in response to this news, listen to what he does. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah hears about this current reality of brokenness amongst God's people, and his response is to fast and to pray for days. In fact, I'm not going to read it this morning, but if you go on and read, he confesses his sin, he confesses the sin of his parents, he confesses the sin of his fathers, the previous generations, and says, God, you told us what would happen if we continued in rebellion, and that's exactly what happened. You sent us away into exile. The walls are broken down. But God, would you give me favor in the eyes of the king of Persia to send me back with resources to rebuild the wall?" I'm broken over this current reality, so I'm fasting and praying and hoping that you would respond, God. And help me address the current reality. And God does respond. And if you read the book of Nehemiah, the walls are rebuilt. God gives them favor in the eyes of the king. People fasted as well whenever they were suffering rejection. Experiencing emotional turmoil and pain. In Psalm 69, the psalmist is praying about the reproach and shame that he has borne on account of his relationship to God. And listen to what he says. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face, that I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have befallen me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. Listen to what he says. He says, I am zealous for you, God. I'm passionate for you, and as a result of that zeal and passion for you, I have become the talk of the town. They talk about me sitting in the gates, The drunkards, they write bar songs about me and make fun of me. Even my own brothers, my mother's sons, he says, have become like strangers and aliens and foreigners to me. I have been disowned from my family because of my zeal for you. And as a result, I pressed into you in fasting because of this emotional pain that I'm experiencing. Finally, finally, in Matthew chapter 4, we see that Jesus fasted in preparation for his public ministry. See, following his baptism by John in the Jordan River, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days in advance of his public ministry. And we're told in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, whenever the tempter comes, after he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You think? And it was at that time Satan comes to test Jesus and says, if you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. And what does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus says, there is a food of which you know not. And it's a food that can sustain me, it can nourish me, it can fill me with delights and joys. It tastes just as sweet as honey. It tastes just as savory as the choicest meats. It is just as filling as fresh-baked bread. In each of these instances, fasting was situational. It wasn't spontaneous. People didn't wake up on a Thursday morning and say, seems like a good day to fast. They were seeking God's intervention, His protection. They were mourning someone's death or the current realities they see. They were mourning their own sin or suffering, or they were preparing for ministry, repenting, and asking God to be merciful. And these were the situations that prompted them to fast. So it wasn't spontaneous, it was situational. And listen, each of these situations that I've just referred to, as we've taken a survey of some of these instances in the Bible, are experiences that are still present realities for you and I. There's still a necessity for the repentance of sin, especially patterns of prolonged sin in our lives. There's still suffering that we experience and emotional turmoil that we go through. There is still the rejection of others on account of our faith in God. There is still pleading with God for his intervention or for his protection. Or as we feel God leading us to serve in a particular area of ministry or open up doors, maybe we're fasting in those situations. It's not haphazard, spontaneous fasting, it is situational fasting that the Bible illustrates. So the next question is this, what does fasting do? If we're engaging in it in these particular situations, what does it do? Listen, if I can use a big word for us this morning and then define it, okay? We are psychosomatic beings. We're psychosomatic beings. If I can put it simply, it means this, that what we do with our bodies impacts our minds. It impacts our wills. It impacts our hearts, our desires, our affections. We cannot compartmentalize ourselves and say, well, I do this with my mind and I do this with my body. Or I do this with my body but I do this with my heart. No, we are whole beings so that everything that we do, whether it be mind, body, or soul, impacts the other two. Does that make sense? And so. What, what does fasting do then? How does it impact us? I think it does at least these three things. First of all, fasting cleanses us. See, one of the impacts that fasting has on our bodies is that it flushes our bodies of some toxins. In fact, a clinical study published on the National Institute for Health website found that fasting caused a decrease, listen, a decrease in, this is gonna be fun, in urinary arsenic and nickel and a decrease in lead hair concentrations. You know what those are? Heavy metals that were exposed to through environmental circumstances. And fasting through this study resulted in the decreasing amounts of these things identified in our hair and our urine. These heavy metals were flushed out of the body. Additionally, they found fatigue and sleep disorders and headache and hunger oftentimes were reduced, body discomfort symptoms diminished. Uh, discomfort was, was diminished because these heavy metals are being flushed out of our systems. It has a cleansing effect. And not only does it do that for our bodies, church, but listen, it does that for our souls. And let me tell you how. When we take Jesus' counsel on fasting here in Matthew 6, and we do not fast in a watch me, watch me type of disposition, it cleanses us of our prideful participation in outward demonstrations to show our spirituality to others. It has a cleansing effect of our souls. In his comments on this passage, St. Augustine wrote these words. He said, For in this work of fasting, a person must take heed that no spirit of self-display creeps in, no craving for human applause, which divides the heart and prevents it from being pure and honest for acquiring knowledge of God. Then he goes on to say this. It is evident from these precepts that our entire striving is to be directed toward inward joy, not outward recognition, but inward joys to keep ourselves from seeking outward rewards and being conformed to this world. Because conformity to this world always seeks outward rewards. He says in forfeiting the If we do that, he says, we forfeit the promise of a blessedness which is more solid and enduring because it's interior, not exterior, inward, not outward, and by which God has chose us to be made conformable to the image of his Son. In other words, here's what he's saying is this. When we fast in the way Jesus instructs us to fast in Matthew 6, we're cleansing our hearts of the need for human recognition, human approval, and human applause. Those of us who wrestle with the idol of human Approval. We want everyone to like us. And it diminishes our courage. Fasting is a bodily habit that helps to cleanse our hearts of that idol. When we do it in the way that Jesus lays out here. Second, Fasting not only cleanses us, but it focuses us. It focuses us. Several peer review articles that I read online this week indicate that fasting has positive mental effects. Here's one of them it says, When you fast, your body has less toxic materials flowing through the blood and lymphatic system, making it easier for you to think. So while fasting, the energy you'd normally use to digest food is available to be used by the brain. It says you won't likely notice this mental change until the first few days of a fast because your body takes time to adjust. And those of you who have fasted for multiple days, you know that to be true. You might have headaches or pain points at the beginning of the process, but after your body clears itself of some of these toxins, your brain has access to a cleaner bloodstream resulting in clearer thoughts, better memory, increased sharpness of other senses. And I tell you, church, the same thing happens spiritually. When we fast, it directs our focus toward God. See, listen, when we take Jesus at His word here in the text, our focus shifts from our human relationships, like trying to put on a show for others, to our heavenly relationship. And in verse 18, Jesus says, And your Father, your Father who sees what is done in secret, uber-classified, His eyes only, your Father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Now, the question is, what is that reward that the Father will give us? It may be the protection or the provision or the intervention or the guidance or the comfort and consolation, or the mercy that we've been petitioning for. It may be those things, but as we saw in David's case, he fasted and prays for seven days, and his child still dies. So it may be those things. However, it will always be, church, a deepening intimacy with God himself. Listen, here's where it gets beautiful. Fasting helps us make the statement of Psalm 63.3 true in our lives where the psalmist says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. You hear what he's saying? Your steadfast love is better than life. This is an astounding statement. The psalmist doesn't just say your steadfast love is great, which is true. The Bible commends the greatness of God's love elsewhere. The psalmist doesn't just say your steadfast love is necessary for us to know you. Your covenant love, we wouldn't know you apart from it. That is true as well. The psalmist doesn't say your steadfast love is unlike anything I've ever seen. That is true as well unconditional all those statements are true but the psalmist doesn't say any of them this is what the psalmist says your steadfast love is better than life in other words out of all the good things that i've experienced in life out of all the good things that i've enjoyed in life your steadfast love is better In fact, you could take away all the good things that I've experienced, and I would be okay as long as I had your steadfast love. In fact, he would go a step further and say, you could take away my life, and I would still be okay as long as I have your steadfast love. Because you are the reward. You are the reward. Your Father who sees in secret, He will reward you. See, when our fasting, when we fast, we focus on the person of God, the nature of God, the character of God. And listen, taking away food is an opportunity to feast on God's love. His steadfast love, which is better than life. And while saying yes to my favorite meal, A perfectly cooked steak. Saying yes to that is good. Psalmist says your steadfast love is better. While saying yes to my favorite dessert, Mm. peanut butter pie. That's good. Your steadfast love is better. While saying yes to your favorite. Drink is good. Soma says, you are so much better. Steadfast love is better than all those things. And when we fast, it focuses us to say, yes, all these good things that I enjoy in life are good, but God is better. Third, and finally, it trains us. It trains us. Another study on the National Institute for Health website found that fasting is closely related to self-emotional control. On the one hand, it said fasting is a process that requires considerable cognitive effort. okay? Controlling the desire to eat and keeping a fast for maybe a few days. On the other hand, when you successfully complete a fast, it may increase the feelings of self-control that you have the capacity to exercise self-control. In other words, whenever we say, learn to say no to the growling of our stomach, it trains us to become less impulsive, to become less controlled by our appetites and desires. When we can say no to our stomach as our cravings rise and we yearn for a taste of something savory or sweet, So we learn to say no to those things. In that vein, listen, fasting trains us to say no to ourselves as well. Because what we do with our bodies, right, it not only impacts our bodies, but our minds and our hearts. Because we are psychosomatic beings. So we're learning to discipline our desires through fasting. So when our stomachs grumble, listen, and we take the hunger pangs to God in prayer... Here's what we're doing. We're learning and training ourselves to do the same when other appetites rise in our souls. Uh Uh-oh. See, if you've never said no to your stomach when it growls, then self-denial will be exponentially more difficult for you. In fact, every time your stomach growls, if you feed it, you're training yourself to do something to say yes to your appetites, to your cravings, to your yearnings. And that training carries over into our spiritual lives. It goes both directions. Because see, later on in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him, what? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Jesus puts self-denial at the heart of discipleship, of what it is to follow him. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who famously wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In other words, the call of Christ upon the life of his disciples is a death to self, a denial of the self, a refusal to let the appetites, the yearnings, and the cravings of the sinful, selfish flesh rule over and control us. Bonhoeffer goes on to say in that same book, when all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. And one of the available weapons that we have against the flesh that we employ in our training to say no to ourselves is fasting. Because what we do with our bodies impacts our minds and our hearts. Listen, if I can break it down for you this way, training, physical training, right? It involves small incremental physiological changes over the course of time through resistance. I had dudes and donuts yesterday morning with our teenage boys in this room. Right? And so they were talking about Bible reading plans and how they start off strong and sometimes taper off. And I said, well, find one that lasts two weeks. And whenever you finish that one, right, start another one that lasts three weeks. And when you finish that one, start another one that lasts a month. And then when you, because there's these self, there's these like, like you, you feel accomplished whenever you finish something. And then you move on to something a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. It's just like training, right? When you go into the gym for the very first time, right, you might not slap. 200 pounds on both sides of the bar, you might just be taking that 45-pound bar and seeing what you can do. But over the course of time, as you build strength through resistance, you add more weight, more resistance, more weight, more resistance, and there are physiological changes that happen in our bodies as we train. And fasting, listen, church, it introduces a type of resistance to our bodies and therefore to our hearts and our minds. And so listen, we train to follow Jesus in, through, in, in self-denial through fasting. Through fasting. When we learn to say no to the cravings of our stomach, it helps us to say no to the cravings of our flesh. Let me ask you a question, students. When, you're ap- when someone hurts you, whenever they wound you with their words, and you have an appetite for revenge that starts to rise in your soul, Right? to return curses with curses rather than blessings? Will you be sufficiently trained to say no to revenge? That's a a real appetite of the flesh. Isn't it? When the appetite, listen, adults, for more things that we don't need, (laughs) as we talked about last week, rises in your heart, will you be sufficiently trained to say no to your flesh? Fasting is a part of that resistance. When the appetite for pornography rises in your heart and soul, which it does for so many, will you be sufficiently trained to say no to that craving? when your appetite for being critical and judgmental of other people begins to rise in your heart, will you be sufficiently trained to say no to that yearning? You see how this works? What we do with our bodies impacts our minds and our hearts. See, each of these things that I've just mentioned are works of the flesh. And as we say no to the cravings of our stomach, we're training ourselves to say no to the appetites of our flesh. Now, some of you are like, well, how do I do this? Listen, I just want to say briefly, as we're done this morning, fasting comes in different forms. You come in fasting from food. That's mostly what we've been referring to because what takes place in the Bible. Fasting from food. And if you fast from food, so I want to encourage you to start small. Okay? Again, you're not putting 200 pounds on the bar on each side and saying, I'm going to throw that puppy up. Because what will happen is it will probably crush your larynx. Okay? But you're going to start small. And so start with potentially fasting from one meal throughout the day and taking the time that you would have spent eating devoted to prayer and scripture and worship and then perhaps as you start small and fast from one meal, maybe you move to two meals like breakfast and lunch and breaking the fast that night at dinner and taking that time that you would have spent preparing and eating breakfast and lunch for worship and word and prayer. Then maybe you move from breakfast and lunch to a 24-hour fast and withholding food. Now, obviously, you continue to drink water, right? During that time, it's one of the things that every article in fasting will tell you is that you must stay hydrated, must stay hydrated. And then you move maybe from that 24-hour fast to a more extended fast. And those of you who've had experience with extended fasting, you know those first two days can be rough. I'm talking headaches, right? Uh, Just irritability, okay? Right? But you're pressing in. And if you will push past that second to third day, then there is something physiologically in our bodies that changes and the hunger pains aren't quite as intense. The headaches begin to rescind oftentimes. And you push into a a position of of clarity of mind. And and you're still potentially consuming like smoothies and, and nutrients, right? And water, but no solid foods during that time as you fast and pray. So you start small, and you grow in these incremental steps as you practice it. And some other things you might experience as you do that is going to be bad breath, like severe halitosis, all right? because as your body cleanses itself, some of that stuff just yeah, smells real bad. All right? Your urine might smell like popcorn. It's not a joke. It's all part of the process. as we fast from food. Now, some of you might say, hey, listen, I've got a, a medical condition. Won't allow me to fast from food. And, and some people, the comfort that they seek in food, that's not sought by other people in food. But I tell you where a lot of folks seek comfort in our culture is through entertainment and technology. And so maybe there needs to be a technology fast for you, right? Figuring out a way And all you can do, have somebody else change your screen time password on your device. Shut everything else down other than your phone and text messages. So that for one day, all you could do is call and text with people. No Facebook, no Instagram, no Twitter, no online searching. No YouTube watching mindless, endless videos that are being populated by an algorithm to keep you hooked. Maybe you would take a technology fast. And maybe that would start for six hours. Okay? And then maybe it goes to 12 hours and then 24 hours and then maybe eventually you work your way up to a week long fast from this thing which brings so many, so much comfort that is hollow. So you start small and you work your way up as you build resistance. Because what you do with your body, it will impact your mind and your heart. Listen, I'll close with this reading from a, a document from 1615. It's called the Irish Articles of Religion. And in that document, Oracle 51, after insisting that fasting cannot bring us to heaven, in other words, it can't save us. We sang about what can save us earlier, Jesus' all-sufficient merit. It goes on to say this, it is therefore requisite that first, before all things, we cleanse our hearts from sin and then direct our fast to such ends as God will allow to be good. And what are those ends, he says? The flesh, flesh may be disciplined, The spirit may be more fervent in prayer and that our fasting may be a testimony of our humble submission to God's majesty when we acknowledge our sins unto him and are inwardly touched with sorrowfulness of heart, bewailing the same in the affliction of our bodies. In other words, our bodies would become a mirror of our souls, of our hearts. It would reflect that spiritual condition. See, in fasting, we're doing nothing to earn God's favor. If you're in Christ, you already have it. Do nothing to earn it, but we are seeking it. Seeking his favor and his guidance and his comfort and his consolation, his intervention, his protection, his mercy in our repentance from sin, that he would withhold even the consequences sometimes of our sin in this life even those who already dealt with the eternal consequences through the payment of Christ at the cross. It cleanses us, it focuses us, and it trains us. So why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we develop this habit? Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to see very clearly how fasting is a part of the normal Christian life. And it's necessary for us, just like Bible reading and prayer and service and giving, like all the other disciplines in worship, because it's through fasting that we train ourselves to say no to our fleshly cravings, yearnings, appetites, and desires. Through fasting, we are f- our minds are focused and fixed on you to say that your love is better than life. And through fasting, we cleanse our hearts of the prideful performance that we might put on for others when we exercise it in the way that your Son commands us to in Matthew 6. And we do it all for the reward which is you to know you more and better we pray in jesus name Amen. hey this is pastor shannon and i want to thank you for tuning in today i trust that the lord has spoken to you through his word and if you don't know jesus as your savior I invite you to trust him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church. But tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.